This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The decade is the 2010s, and the films are your choices. It's the grand finale of The Best of the Decade, part four. Everybody and welcome to Unspooled. I am Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where we normally look at a film on the AFI 100 list and see if they really are as good as people say. Do they hold up and how have they influenced the films that we watch today? But for the last four weeks, give or take one week when we talked about Star Wars, we have been looking back at the last decade. And what a decade it's been. Amy and I have brought up many a movie to see what really stands out as the movie of the decade. And I don't think we're going to get an answer to that, but we figured it's enough of us talking. We wanted to hear from you, and we also wanted to hear from some of our friends that are in this business, actors and and directors and uh, voiceover artists. I mean, we have an amazing lineup of calls today. I mean, we have people like Sarah Silverman and Patton Oswalt and Adam McKay and Justin Roiland, uh, just to name a few people calling in. But, you know, this show is not made just by Amy and I. No, no. Um, we actually have two gigantic film fans uh, on either side of us. Uh, one is our producer, Josh Richmond. How are you, Josh? Hi, guys. And the other is our is our sound engineer, Devin. Devin, welcome. Hello. Devin, um, you both have put together your own top 10 lists of the decade. And, and I think Amy and I both look to you as, as being uh, people that we respect, right? Uh, absolutely. And uh, I, like, I mean, I couldn't respect them more. They have my entire hearts and souls. I love them both so deeply. And I thought it would be really fun to hear your bottom five picks. We're going to hear all 10 of them, but let's start off 
the episode by hearing your bottom five picks of the best films of the decade. I know, Josh, you've already cheated. You say you have 11. I do. I, I, there was, I had to have one honorable mention. I love it. I, I like an ambitious producer. Yeah. You're always going that extra mile. Thank you. Um, we will flip a coin in our mind. Okay. Amy, you pick it, heads or tails. And, uh, well, I guess we have to pick what you guys have. What do you want to? Oh, well, no. We'll, we'll, uh, <laughs> you know what? I have a bottle. I'm going to spin the bottle and we'll use it to see who goes. All right, first. great. Ah, okay, All right, good. that's good. Um, our beloved Kim Troxell sent us the sweetest Christmas gifts. Oh my gosh, she sent us a horse's head in chocolate. <laughs> Very you... shades of Godfather. If, it, if that's what it takes, I'll never put that man in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and she also sent us some Kentucky bourbon. So I'm going to spin that very fast. Yes. And whoever it lands on, whether it's landed closer on Josh or Devin, they go first. All right, Devin, it is. Okay, closer to Devin. Here we go. Your bottom five. Best films of the decade. Now, I, I will preface this by saying that Josh and I are such nerds with this that we have both made a hundred films of the decade. I list. heard about that's this, where this yes. all started, but but we have narrowed it down to the ten for the purposes of this episode. But we did make our hundred films of the decade. I list. will did you say do this separately, or did you? It, it grew out of the conversation. It was uh, it was actually during the DC uh, Body of Evidence show of how did this get yes. made. Josh was tweeting about, oh, let's start thinking about best films of the decade, and he and I started going back and forth about it, and then. It was like, okay, you do your 100 list. I'll do mine. And I eventually went to one of those uh, March Madness bracket sites and I put all of my 100 <laughs> movies into a bracket and then ran the entire bracket by itself, facing them off each other in pairs to get my top 10. I <laughs> am so excited. And let's just say this. If you will let us, we will put both of your 100 lists up on sure. our uh, on our Twitter so you can you can check in if you if you like what they're saying for this. This is amazing and <laughs> so uh, so well-researched. And John, you also have like an insane list of, of songs, right? That's well, that, that's that's a 2020 project, and I'm keeping okay. that on the download. Okay, for now, but, yeah. <laughs> all right, sorry, I, 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 I won't even bring it up. Maybe but from what we know about this, if you think 100 films is something, wait till you hear what Josh has going. Yes. Okay. Okay. So. Here's what we got. Uh, I'm going to take an honorable mention also. Okay. Uh, just outside. Um, it's actually, I think, down in, in my 30s uh, on my list. But it's a movie that uh, I, I feel very strongly about, and I've wrestled with maybe whether or not it should be higher. It's a film called 71. Ooh, have any of you right. seen this? No. I have seen it. Yeah, this. it's uh, Jack O'Connell is in it. It's uh, Jan Dimanche directed it. It's this action thriller about a uh, British squatty who gets stuck behind enemy lines during the Troubles in Dublin in 1971. Okay. And it's done, I mean, there are moments of it that are done with like an actual single shot as opposed to the Birdman trickery or something yeah. like that. There's these long, long takes of him trying to uh, stay alive overnight in a hostile environment, uh, not knowing anyone around him, trying to, you know, kind of uh, barter for yeah. favors and this, that, and there. It's an incredible movie, pulse-pounding, one of the best action movies I've ever seen. Wow, um, all right. I've never even heard of that. It 71. flew under the radar. Yeah, 71. Everyone should check it out. I think 2014, all right. Yeah. As an actor, Jack O'Connell was made to be beaten up in movies. Yes, he is. I agree. Very good at that. He's really good at it. Um, okay, so uh, here's my bottom uh, five of my top ten. At number ten, Four Lions. Oh, great choice. Christopher Morris movie yes, from 2010. I forgot about that. I love Four Lions. It's a movie that has not uh, dimmed over time. I think it's mm -hmm. exactly as uh, cutting and sad and melancholy and funny as it was when it first came out. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know about it, it's uh, described by Chris Morris, the writer-director, as a uh, slapstick comedy about suicide bombers. Which It's such a great movie. Yes. And... Uh, I mean, The Brass Eye is one mm. of my favorite uh, shows. Absolutely. And he's behind that. Yes. He's, 
the day today. Day today on the hour. Um, I auditioned for his, I guess, his follow up film for this. Oh, so the day shall come. Yes. Oh, yes. I did Which I not seen get yet. it. Uh, I've not heard that much about it. Uh, it's it came. I don't know if it's come out here yet. It, okay. it came out in the in the UK, and he did a bunch of uh, press, which is unusual for him around. Yeah. It. it sounds interesting, and I like the premise of it a lot. Uh, Wait, but I think I saw it. You may have. Wait, what is it about? It's the day. An- yeah. Yeah. It's with Anna Kendrick, isn't it? Yes, I did see that. Ah. It's great. Oh, good. Oh, great. <laughs> that, that's. I'm very happy to hear that. Uh, I he's a big hero of mine. Four Lines is a fantastic film. This is the first time I saw Riz Ahmed and Kayvan Novak. Uh, it was also co-written by Jesse Armstrong, who just did su- Succession. So, you know, if that oh, gets wow. yeah. any of those fans who want to go see it. Uh, Four Lines, that's my number 10. Great choice. Um, number nine, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which I plumped for on an earlier episode of this miniseries. Yes. I love it. I love Edgar Wright. I love the cast. I think it's funny all the way through. Uh, it's just a fantastic movie. Uh, I, there's nothing I can say about it that isn't glowing. I love that film. Um, okay. Number eight, A Field in England. What is this? This is a movie by Ben Wheatley and his uh, co-writer and editor, uh, Amy Jump. Amy Jump and Ben Wheatley have had a crazy 2010s. They did uh, Kill List, which is a fantastic uh, kind of crime movie that devolves into something far more sinister. They did High Rise, which a lot of people will have seen, the J.G. Ballard adaptation. Um, Very good Sienna Miller in that movie. Yes, absolutely. Uh, And Free Fire he did recently as well, which was uh, uh, people caught in a gun, um, like a gun sale gone wrong inside a warehouse, which I think most people didn't see because it was marketed in a very Tarantino-y, rip-off-y kind of way. Right. That's what it looked like, yeah. but it's not that at all. It's a very visceral, dark comedy along the lines of uh, Baby Driver, actually, with the way it's edited so fast. Another good Army Hammer. In that yes. Movie. Yes. But A Field in England is the one they did in the middle of the decade. It's an incredible movie. stars Reese Shearsmith from The League of Gentlemen, uh, another kind of comedy uh, troupe that I, I consider, yeah. you know, geniuses. Uh, it's this movie about these prisoners that are being led uh, in, during the English Civil War, I believe, the War of the Roses. They're being led across uh, to, I think, a bo- I think it's a boat to Australia. Things are a little bit like um, opaque in that movie, yeah. plot wise. But the whole point of it is, is that they they come across this preacher and are given some psychedelics in the middle of this field. It's all in black and white, and they go absolutely bananas. Like things just go wrong. And there's all these strange tableaus that the music, the movie will sometimes freeze into. Where where everyone's kind of arranged in this way that tells you something about all their characters and motivations, and it'll just hang on it for, like, minutes at a time and then go back into the actual action of the film. Wow. It's super uh, super artistic, uh, very, very sinister, uh, very funny, too, um, and and very, like, tactile. You can feel all the dirt, and, and you can s- kind of smell that movie in the same way you could with Midsummer. Yeah. Um, it, it actually has a similar kind of tone to Midsummer, where because it's black and white it's being shot in like very bright daylight and there's that thing about midsummer how it's almost scarier because it's in bright daylight and not in like the shadows or something like that so feeling that england has a similar vibe and i I love everything ben wheatley has made i think uh he's he's amazing and amy jump who is his uh, like i say co-writer co-editor she uh doesn't like the limelight so she stays out of the way everything's always kind of credited to him but if you do some research it's clear that they're a, a team i i love this these are really good choices so far uh laying down the gauntlet uh for josh but, i know <laughs> uh but that uh, but a field england available on all platforms very easy to find oh th- that was another interesting thing about it it was one of the first movies i remember that uh, was released like day and date where it okay. came out in the theater and was available streaming right away and it's 
it's a UK film. I'm I'm big into uh, you know I'm a huge Anglophile, yeah. and often I have to wait months and months to be able to see something like Four Lions uh, or The Day Shall Come. But Field in England came out, and there it was. I was like, yay! I can see this right away and download it. it. So I love right. that movie. So that's your, your that's bottom number eight. Three, yeah. Uh, so number seven, The Master. Great master, uh, solid. It's just an incredible movie. There's nothing really that we need to say about it that hasn't been said, uh, you know, by other contributors and that sort of thing. It's, it's just pure cinematic poetry to me. Uh, uh, from the from the opening to the ending, every single second of it is just worth chewing over. Uh, everything about it is is savory. I don't know. Now, I Josh, you recently rewatched it after uh, Ryan Johnson and I both were singing praises, and still doesn't work for you. That's true. I. Mm-hmm. Thought I was going to love The Master. I saw it in 70mm when it came out. I was so excited for it. It was such a big There Will Be Blood fan. It just didn't connect with me when I saw it. And then you guys talked it up recently, and I watched it again. And it's, I can recognize how well acted it is, and it's just... It just doesn't connect on that like visceral, like emotional level for whatever reason. As much as I can recognize like how how strong that those the production values are, and I can understand that. I, I the one thing I will say about that movie is that to me the key to the whole film is the, the title and who that is referring to. And I think uh, after having seen it now seven or eight times, I think. My opinion is that yeah. the master is Amy Adams. That's exactly who is at the center Ooh. of the film. Um, and those other two are rotating, orbiting around her. She is the one who's the center of that triangle of the, you know, uh, whether she's keeping them apart or bringing them together. She's the crux that the whole movie turns on. Ooh, um, like this. If you think about it like that, too, and rewatch it, you'll notice that Paul Thomas Anderson does this thing often of having her in scenes where she doesn't speak all the time. She's always there and she's often staring down the lens. When oh, when wow. the camera becomes the perspective of Joaquin Phoenix during uh, at the party scene, uh, she's just looking at you, the audience. And that was the first time I noticed it, and that happens often throughout the film. Wow! I did love that scene rewatching it recently that I didn't yeah. notice before, where she's staring right at the camera and says, "My eyes are green, my yeah. eyes are black," and you actually see her eyes change yes. color. Yes, it's, it's so cool. I know. I, ooh, that just gave me chills thinking about it. I right, feel like it. I'm just going to spend the rest of this podcast staring at Josh. Uh, <laughs> I haven't even got to my movie show. Uh, all right. Okay, and great. then finally. Finally, finally uh, Under the Skin. Oh, yeah. Love Under the Great. Skin. Uh, Perfect. Just beautifully made, hypnotic. Uh, the music is incredible. A really interesting film, and it's like, uh, I, and we talked about it a lot. Like, it's just, yeah. it's, it's, just, it's unique. It's mm-hmm. like very, I, I think whenever you can find those like very unique films, it's, it's exciting. Yes. It's like, yeah. And as a side note, I will just say that that came out the same year that Scarlett Johansson did Lucy which yes. I don't know if anyone ever saw Lucy. Mm-hmm. Lucy is an absolutely bananas movie. It's pure, pure insanity. Yeah. But I kind of love it, and I it's, kind of love her in it. But it's like, it sort of has all the elements of John Wick. Like, you yes. know, that, that yes. kind of, like, fun, high-level... stylized yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. Where, yeah, I mean... I don't want to give anything away from Lucy. I will say everyone should see it, but, you know, Scarlett Johansson becomes a super genius (laughs) assassin who may or may not turn back all human evolution. Anyway. All right. I am breaking my uncomfortable stare. I watched it all here. I need to say, I don't buy that in Lucy. If she becomes the smartest thing on earth, she still has to fight in a miniskirt and heels. I think the smartest person on earth would go get Jean. I agree with you 100%. (laughs) All right. So, Josh, we just heard a pretty compelling list. Good picks. I do Uh, feel feel very competitive with that, although Four Lions is really good. Four Lions is great. Yeah. Under the Skin is my number one movie score of the decade. Oh, yeah, sure. right. It's really such, good. such a good score. Mm-hmm. All right. I had one honorable mention, number 11, I wanted to sneak in because there are no Marvel movies in my top 10, but my number 11 is Avengers Endgame, which is wow. one of the most insane movies I've ever seen. Just a 
fucking batshit crazy movie yeah. when you realize all the things that happen in that film over the course of three hours. And yet it somehow totally holds up, totally works. It doesn't work at all as a standalone movie, which makes it like almost impossible to compare to any of the other films we're talking about. But it is still like... A real achievement, in addition to being the most successful movie of all time. You know, I'm glad that you brought it up, because as I am a staunch Marvel defender over here, I will say no other franchise has endeavored to do a 10-year culmination that literally takes warts and all. Like, the things that you don't like about, uh, or is it Dark World Dark Thor? World, yeah. yeah. Like, they, they weaved it in almost intentionally. So, like, you know that thing that you didn't like? We're going to make sure that that makes sense. Like, they didn't, and look, they did a really great job of, I think, paying off things, making it exciting. And as a 10-year fan, like, I think that that's an, imp- I, that is a feat. And it's a feat, like, we talk about. James Cameron's Titanic. It's it's a giant, giant undertaking. It's one of the most fun times I had at a movie theater this year, easily. All right. Amy's love- looking at me expectantly. <laughs> <laughs> now you're just going to stare she, at Devin the whole She's time. looking for some some uh, a friend in the room, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I am. Well, I like Marvel movies a lot. Ah, now, I, I'm not one who's going to argue that they're high art, but they're so, so enjoyable. And I cried at the end of Endgame because I care about those yes. characters. After spending yeah. 10 years really with them, affected. I care. I so, yeah, I, I like them. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and I think, I mean, look. Endgame is nowhere on my hundred. <laughs> Let me just point that out. No, not even on your hundred. I don't think, I think Black Panther's on there. Well, you see, because oh no, I, Thor Ragnarok is on my. You see, because I, I do believe that like there is something about that as an accomplishment. So many other directors could have mishandled that, and I think you've seen so many directors kind of trying it, like you know whether it is Justice League, and I know a uh, Snyder cut, whatever. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> but like there are so many team ups, mashups, and that movie managed to, I think, smartly. They get rid of some characters, so they're like, we don't need to deal with them. We don't need to pay them off. We're going to pay off these. And they did a very good job of balancing and script wise. That's the thing is I think of all the ways that movie could have gone wrong, and it somehow didn't. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's miraculous. I it's, agree with that. It is a feat of filmmaking as far as what it endeavored to accomplish. I, I think mm-hmm. that's important. Okay. I like the part where Scarlett Johansson died. Oh, man. <laughs> Boy. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> okay, uh, my real picks, though. Uh, number 10, I almost waffled in this. I almost didn't include it. I ended up doing it. It is, at this moment, although it's likely to change, my number one film of 2019 is Under the Silver Lake. Is wow. a movie I really loved. I like wow. that movie, too. Good pick. In the top 10. In the top 10. 10. It's, wow. Because it, I think, better than any other movie I've seen this year, represented what it felt like to live in 2019 which is that we're just inundated with all this information and all this weird shit happening around us. And we're just constantly trying to find connections between all these things that are happening and looking for clues and looking for patterns. And sometimes it's just nonsense. And sometimes you actually do uncover like this insane evil conspiracy that actually is happening and you can't do anything about it. All right. I like this. And I know this is a movie that a lot of people have talked about and a lot of people have really like fallen in love with and uh and I'm glad to see it brought up in me especially in the noir world like I feel like um I've heard it brought up in a, like in in the same kind of said this as brick you know it's mm-hmm. kind of like doing something in the now but also kind of feels It's uh, definitely playing a fed noir stuff it's also really really funny and has all these like crazy set piece scenes it does a really good job of holding that tone it's a great LA movie 
as somebody who lives close to Silver Lake, it does. It, it's a really good Silver Lake movie. Not necessarily yeah. setting a trend here, but the reason why I haven't watched it is because I also auditioned for that movie and <laughs> did not get it. I was really pissed off. I was like, damn it. That movie, like, the script was really great. You have you have won me over, actually. I am like I like to hear anybody else stick up for that film makes me feel like yes, yeah. yes, yes, it was yes, yes. Really, yes. really good. I also thought it was a lovely portrait of like a a, a modern era fuckboy. It's <laughs> <laughs> like he's so just aimless, floppy. Like I love that character. I feel like I really nailed that personality for type. Sure. I don't. I don't even usually like Andrew Garfield, and I thought he completely nailed that archetype for sure. He did, and I thought that movie really did a good job of of kind of subtly getting into this like infantilization of culture, the way that everybody's wearing these like cartoon t shirts and stuff, like always in the background, always everywhere. But I think that movie has a lot of text to it that I'd love to keep. I yeah, that moment where they're playing through like every pop song of the last fifty years and talking about how it was like actually like all engineered by corporations, and yeah. it's like it's true. It's anyways. <laughs> I could talk about the movie a long time. Good um, choice. You've made up for your your. your <laughs> there you go. Choice. They balance out so far. Um, <laughs> Um, number nine, I won't spend too much time on Lady Bird. I really loved Lady Bird. Um, pa- I mean, Paul, you talked yeah. in the first one of these best of the decades about how there have been so many of these sort of like yeah. indie-ish, semi-autobiographical, like little movies that are so easy to overlook and are often like just not very easy to watch. This movie is so watchable. Just as an editor, I'm in awe of her as an editor. I mean, like every scene is like exactly as long as it needs to be. It's so perfectly paced. It's so snappy. It's so funny. It, it just, it, it really completely Well, top works. 10, though, that you think that that is the best coming-of-age story in the decade? Yeah. Wow. I'd, I'd, put okay. my, I'd put my chips on that. All right, put great. Put it above boyhood. I would put it above boyhood. I and actually, I'm realizing there's, yes. another, there's another movie that's technically coming-of-age that's higher on my list. But, oh, wow. Okay, yeah, great. Right. Um, number eight is uh, Snowpiercer. Is. Wow, this is a very interesting list. You both have really come at it in a very different way. I like this a lot, okay? Everybody's talking about Parasite this year. I loved Parasite. I still think Snowpiercer is, is probably his best movie. Um, it's a movie, I haven't even watched it that that recently, but there's like at least five or six scenes that have like burned themselves on my brain and completely stuck with me between like the uh, the crazy Tota Swinton montage and like Chris Evans' like baby-eating monologue. And the entire ending of that movie is so, is both so grim and so kind of optimistic. It's just, it's a great sci-fi movie. It juggles all these tones so well. It's just, it's just a, a really exceptional film. I like Snowpiercer a lot. This is great. I'm, yeah. I'm in. I'm in. And I'll go through the other two pretty quickly because you touched on <laughs> them. Uh, Phantom Thread was number seven. It's just such a funny, uh, truly romantic Is that film. your favorite PT? It's my favorite PT of the decade. Okay. Um, I like There Will Be Blood more and, and Boogie Nights more. Got it. And uh, then Grand Budapest at number six. Ah, oh, great. Look at uh, that good pick. It's just such a... God, I just like... It's, it's funny because it's both like... I think it's his plottiest film. There's so many things happening in that movie, but it also packs it so much thematically and emotionally. It just like, it really holds up. My question to you is, how about that on your Wes Anderson chart? Where does that fall? Mm. Really high. Um, I think it maybe it's second. Darjeeling and then. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe second behind Tenenbaums. Okay. I think, I think that's fair. Mm. Yeah. I can't quite figure out where I fall on Tenenbaums, Rushmore, and Budapest yet. I, I mean, because I, like Rushmore is where I really kind of fell in love with him. And we talked about this last week, the idea of like, First one out of the gate, like, do they do better or well, do you see more? Yeah. It, I mean, not, it's not technically it's not first. first right, and, yes. and I will just throw in that I'm a massive fan of Bottle Rocket, his first yes, movie. That's, you're right. Sorry. That's maybe my favorite Wes Anderson. You're right. I forgot about that. Bottle Rocket, I've watched 
50 times. Yeah. I love that movie. It's also, since one. you're an animation person, I'm a big Fantastic Mr. Fox fan. Yeah. Great really movie. Like that movie. Great movie. It's really good. Isle of Dogs as well. Isle of Dogs is good. All right. Well, this is great. We will hear the uh, remainder of your top five. And based on those bottom five, excited about that. Uh, let's get into some phone calls. Hey everyone, this is Gil Ozeri. You may know me as the guy who eats food over a garbage can, or my wife's cute little companion with the ass that won't quit. Or you may know me from Comedy Bang Bang. I play Dr. Sweet Chat and Ned Bellinella, the busiest man, or Irving Sardinus. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to say how much I'm gonna miss Scott now that he's dead. What? What do you mean he's not dead? Well, whose funeral was that? What? Who the hell is Gary? Wow, okay, well, I guess I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy 15th anniversary. Wow, I always have the best time on CBB. It is so much fun to do, and Scott makes me feel warm and welcome and extra wet. So here's to another 15 years. Keep listening to Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. Ruba, go do it. That's right, Ruba, they should go do it. Yes. They should, Ruba, right? Yes. Shouldn't they? No. What do you mean, no? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Bruba go do. Yes, Bruba go do. Bruba go do. That's right, Bruba go do. You know, Amy, we talked about MacGruber in one of our first episodes and how that movie really didn't get its just deserve in the theater. And so many people wrote in saying, I love this movie. I just saw this movie. It's really funny. It's really great. Uh, and also just applauded that we could have a conversation where, where MacGruber and Melancholy can share like the same episode. So why not kick off our phone calls with the director of MacGruber? Take a listen. Hey, this is Yorma Taconi from The Lonely Island. One of my favorite movies of the last decade is Attack the Block, directed by Joe Cornish. Uh, I love it. It's like an updated... Steven Spielberg movie with kids fighting aliens in London, and it's fantastic. Every aspect of it, the way it's shot, the storytelling, the cast is wonderful. Uh, I love movies with kids doing stuff that kids probably shouldn't be doing, and uh, it feels like Goonies meets, I don't know what, (laughs) an awesome alien movie. That's it! I love that. Uh, one another great movie that kind of slipped through the cracks uh, that we didn't talk about. Do you love that movie? It's so fun. I really appreciate the creature design in that. It's where yeah. the creatures are just dark, but their teeth glow in the dark. Yeah. Because I think so many times fantasy sci-fi films tend to have the same looking monster. Yes. You know what I mean? Like the kind of Cloverfield monster. And I thought this monster was really inventive and it worked really well because it also... It fit what didn't have a huge budget. You know, you could have darkness, but imagine the things were coming up and all you needed was that smile. Well, I also feel like what Yorma said that I think is something that people always are chasing is like, what's the next Goonies? Let's remake Goonies. No, no, you don't need to remake Goonies. Just make movies like this. It kind of captures that spirit and energy. That's why I felt about uh, Good Boys. I love Good Boys. It's super fun and really unique and uh, such a fun one. All right, great. Also worth giving a shout out to Joe Cornish's second movie, uh, The Kid Who Would Be King, which came out this year. I did not see that. fully under the radar. Nobody saw it. It was great. I saw it at the Arclight. I loved it. All right, I got to see that. That is on my list now. Excellent kids movie. All right, next up, Amy is the co-creator and director of one of my favorite shows of the last year, Russian Doll. That's such a fun show. Such a fun show. Let's listen to uh, what Leslie has to say. Hi, I'm Leslie Hetland, and uh, my favorite movie of the decade is probably 
John Wick. Listen, I'd love to say something a little more highbrow. I'd love to say something that won a couple Oscars. But John Wick is my shit. It's my jam. When I saw the film, I felt so energized by it. I had not seen action shot like that in, in so, so long. And, and it just made me feel alive again to see so much stunt-based fight choreography. I thought Keanu Reeves was incredible. He's one of my favorite actors, even though he gets a lot of shit. <laughs> I love him so much. Um, I also thought it was an, an excellent example of world building in a time period in cinema where world building is either a complete fucking mess or a lot of it's been done, you know, off screen, meaning via like the Marvel catalog, like that's like decades and decades. Like with John Wick, it was a very simple world building idea that was difficult to execute and they did it perfectly. Oh, and it's got uh, dogs in it, which, you know, I love dogs. It's a way to get me emotionally involved. Um, I'd say the runners-up are uh, Mad Max Fury Road and Black Swan. Um, obviously, I would have loved to pick something with a female protagonist, but if I'm being honest, John Wick is probably the movie I've watched the most. That's it. Good night. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I love, love that. But you know what? I think that that, what she captures is something that we, Josh and I were just talking about, like this idea of like, what makes you feel in the theater in the moment? John Wick was a, like a really like, seeing that in the theater is like, whoa, yeah. whoa. Yeah, it's totally. fun. Although I do think when it comes to the world building element, that's why John Wick 2 is my favorite. I of agree. Of the Wicks. Of the Wicks, I'm a two person. Uh, but, yeah. I, but I think what, you don't get John Wick two without John Wick one. So like, you know what I'm saying? Like thing, like what they set what up. If in you the, did that. What if you just made a movie where you started with the second? Uh, but no, I think that they. I mean, but I think that they kind of did. I mean, you know, because he was retired at that point. Like they brought him back in to that world, and they didn't have to introduce like, well, this is a hotel where this goes on. Everything was functioning, and he instead of him being a uh, you know a fish out of water, it was like a fish returning to the pond that he left, and that was. Kind of what I liked about it. It was a it was a better way of doing it. It wasn't like all oh, this is new. He doesn't understand the world. Like no, a coin means this and blah blah blah. You know, I don't know. I just think the world building is great. That's why I'm actually excited about the Continental, which is going to be the series about the hotel that may or may not be made. I, it could be interesting. Yeah. I mean, I love myself uh, some Lance Reddick. So you know, uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers have a dance called the Continental, and maybe that should be the song. Oh, I'm in. Let's do all it. All right, all right. Let's hear from uh, some of our listeners. Sean the Sheep movie deserves a mention. Comedy as a whole is underappreciated, and so are children's movies. But what makes Sean the Sheep movie the best of both is that it's a silent film. All storytelling and humor is communicated visually, and it's fantastic. Check it out if you haven't. Thanks. Bye. For my money, the best film of the past decade was Cabin in the Woods. Um, there's probably more critically acclaimed movies, but... I don't think any single movie this decade has sat with me in the same way. It's intelligent, but also super accessible and fun and ambitious, but also humble at the same time. And uh, that that's my favorite movie of this past decade, Cabin in the Woods. Hi, Paul and Amy. This is Amanda from Utah. So my favorite movie of the decade happens to be my favorite movie of all time. 
Um, it's About Time, which is from 2013 by Richard Curtis. Um, even though the premise of the movie sounds kind of silly with time travel and it's a little bit cheesy, this movie has one of the most honest and beautiful portrayals of a relationship I've ever seen. Um, it really touched me. It touched my heart. It's stuck with me ever since I first saw it. Um, and I think it deserves a lot more love. So, yeah, go check out About Time. Thanks. What a great selection of films. And, you know, I, I love uh, Cabin in the Woods. And that, to me, is Joss Whedon at his full power of being Joss Whedon, which is great idea, teamed up with an, another amazing writer, Drew Goddard. And Drew Goddard directed the shit out of that. And, I, and I'm, I'm a fan of Drew Goddard. He's also been a big uh, influence behind The Good Place. Uh, you know, I think that obviously that's Mike Schur's show, but he's also brought a, a style to it. We talked a lot about his uh, his film El Royale uh, last, last year on the show. I just, I think that that's the way that Joss Whedon really thrives is when he can kind of, you know, I think on Buffy when he has like these amazing writers and this great concept, he can really, really fly. I was also glad to hear some love for About Time because I think yeah. that movie is really charming and it is also an example of just a movie that is perfectly cast. I mean, the 2010s have kind of been maybe the, the, the beginning of the decade of Donald Gleason. Yeah. Who's in everything. And he's such a great romantic lead in that. I love Rachel McAdams. That's also, I think, the very first time I technically saw Margot Robbie on screen, even though I didn't know she was Margot Robbie oh, then. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, how smart is that? And it also had Richard E. Grant. So Dumbo Gleason is really, uh, he really is a chameleon too. Like, you know, he, he, I think transforms so well between roles that you don't even realize that you're seeing him in the, like, it's like, Oh, right. That's Dom Hall Gleason. Like it's, he, he's, he's great. And I think he's, his greatness is underappreciated because he's so good. And he was so hunky in that movie that came out this year. What was the one where the, the, the lady mafia members? Oh yeah. The kitchen, the kitchen. He was such a hunk in the kitchen. I I was like, I had no idea. After being such a nerd next machina. Oh, Another God. great movie. I mean, I love red-haired men, but when he comes out in the kitchen, I was just like, oh, my God. Um, uh, I was excited to hear the love for Shaun the Sheep, the movie. I Oh, yeah. I absolutely love that movie. I love all Aardman films, but that, that one is a particular favorite, um, and it is on my list at number 37. Wow. <laughs> is Paddington 2 on your list? Of course Paddington right. 2 is yeah, on my list. Thank I you. love Paddington 2. Paddington, Paddington 2. Paddington 1 on your list? It, well, no, because I was trying to do some like, you know, not yeah. two from the same director or two from the same franchise. That's a, that's a hard thing. And Paddington 2 is just so it's good. It's a really it's, special yeah. movie. It's true. I, I'm with you. Paddington 2, John Wick 2. Yeah. They it, get better. Interesting. Um, you know, let's check in with a director that we've talked about a few times on this show. He's a director of The Big Short, also Vice. Uh, he's made movies like Step Brothers and Talladega Nights and Anchorman. Let's see what Adam McKay's best film of the decade is. Hello, this is Adam McKay calling. <laughs> and my favorite movie of the decade. Um, I would have to say it's Act of Killing, uh, a documentary about uh, Indonesia and the current regime, it's a very dark movie. It's not a fun answer, by the way, but an incredible documentary where they go and they get these, basically these unprosecuted war criminals to act out the killings that they did. 
And what's incredible about it is you see these unprosecuted war criminals who in today's culture in Indonesia are treated like heroes. But as they're acting out the murders and they're acting out the horrible things, you could see in their eyes they know it was horrible. Despite all the fake propaganda around them, despite everyone saying it was okay. So I found it oddly inspiring that you can't run away from stuff like that. Also an amazingly imaginative movie, like what a way to approach that subject. Uh, to this day, I think about it all the time. I think it's truly a, a monumental work. And there's a follow-up documentary to it, which I haven't seen yet, which I have to see considering how much I love the first one. Anyway, that's my answer, Act of Killing. Bye. Amy, have you seen that doc? Because I have oh, not. Yeah, absolutely. And I also have seen the sequel, A Look of Silence, which follows a specific man who's an optometrist in the same region. Oh, and wow. his patients are people that he knows have helped kill his family and 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 friends. That documentary is truly beautiful. And in fact, um, I wrote about it for the Rolling Stone Top 100 list because I just thought it was so special. It really does get into how how a culture can be brainwashed into hero worshiping the people who get to write history because they won by killing a million people who live in their own country. Right. And the man who we mainly see, um, a man named Anwar, who was responsible for heading a squad that killed literally a million people, you watch him kind of go through these stages of like mugging, like I'll show you how to decapitate a body. And then at the end, he can't even really say right. what went wrong. He just goes up on the roof and he kind of hacks. It, it's 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 horrifying and beautiful. It's a really great pick. Well, I think, you know, we're, I mean, I, I, it sounds really kind of jaw dropping. And I think especially now we're in a culture where, you know, there are a lot of decisions being made and this is outside of politics, but like, you know, are people ever going to feel the consequences of their actions? And I think that there's something, I mean, I guess that's what Adam was saying is that there's something nice to know that, yeah, it, it will eventually catch up with you. I mean, it's sort of like the fog of war to a certain degree. You kind of see like the toll these things start to take. Um, on your body and on your on your soul. It's true. Although if you want to see a movie that makes you feel a little less, even less settled than that, there's a movie came, that came out this year, a documentary called The Kingmaker about Imelda Marcos that is truly fantastic. Oh, really? And I hope people go see that too while it's out because her family has not really left power even though we thought they left power and that's what it's about. Well, let's keep our uh, Academy Award favorites rolling as we go to a Academy Award-nominated uh, writer. He co-wrote 500 Days of Summer, The Spectacular Now, which is one of my favorites, um, The Fault in Our Stars, Paper Town, and the disaster artist, Michael Weber. Hi, guys. It's Michael Weber. Uh, my favorite movie of the decade is World of Tomorrow, written and directed by Don Hertzfeldt. Uh, I realize this is a, a little bit outside the box as World of Tomorrow is animated, uh, and it's only 16 minutes long. Uh, but it was nominated for an Oscar a few years ago, and, and, and rightfully so. Somehow in, in, in only 16 minutes, it's about everything that matters. Life, death, love, uh, appreciating the present, space rocks, futuristic clones. It's, it's a film that's, that's funny and sad, and it's so incredibly wise. Uh, you can watch it online right now, and I hope you find it as beautiful and moving as I do. All right. Bye, guys. 
I love Weber coming in with that. Last year he was talking about shoplifters. This year he's talking about the world of tomorrow, which is on Vimeo. If you just Google it, you can find it right away. 16 minutes. You can spare that right now at your desk or wherever you are. Just check it out. It's a thousand percent worth it. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, oh yeah. I oh, love yeah. this. I'm getting like a, like this best of the decade has really like opened my mind. I'm like writing down all these films. I'll never stop watching movies. Never yeah. Stop, stop I, I just something. want to stick up for Hertzfeld too. No, nobody like him. Just no animator like him. There was a sequel to World of Tomorrow that just came out this year too. Really, really good. I also saw that. It is also terrific. Oh, and Amy, we also have a call from Conan O'Brien. Hello. My name is Conan O'Brien and my favorite movie of the decade is Bone Tomahawk. Let me tell you why. You're going to hear a lot of people mention movies that you've all heard of and seen. I am mentioning Bone Tomahawk because it's a fantastic movie that was made in 2015. It's a Western horror film. It was written by S. Craig Zahler, and it was directed also by the same man, and it stars Kurt Russell. And Matthew Fox is in it, and it's absolutely David Arquette's in it. It's I can't describe it. It is uh, incredibly, it'll freak you out. You have to see this movie, Bone Tomahawk. That's my pick for my film of the decade. My name again, Conan O'Brien. Okay, I was not expecting that. Take it from Conan. That is the one to check out. All right, let's go back to uh, some of our listeners here. Let's do another little collage. Hello, my pick for a movie that needs representation from this last decade is from 2011. It is a little horror film called Your Next. I think it is just well-rounded in every possible way. It scratches every itch as far as the movie goes, and especially as a horror film. It gives just enough gore, it has humor, and it keeps giving something to the viewer until the very last minute. So Your Next. Hey, so my favorite film of the decade and a film I think is not going to get much play from uh, most people is uh, Steve McQueen's Shame, uh, starring Michael Fass, another better Michael Fassbender uh, and Carrie Mulligan, among other great actors. Um, Sean Bobbitt shot it, who's one of the best cinematographers working today. Um, the synopsis uh, from IMDb says, A sex addict's carefully cultivated private life falls apart after his sister arrives for an indefinite stay. And that sort of encapsulates the drama of it all. Some, you know, it, a film that sort of captures addiction uh, better than almost any other film, especially like behavioral addiction, and um, captures sort of neurosis falling apart and the crazy sort of very uncomfortable relationship too close at times between a brother and sister and structurally, I think it's a perfect film. Um, the use of color in the film is very intelligent. The, it's almost the intro and the, and the endings are masterfully edited. Um, the way just sort of everything is structured is so perfect to me. Uh, and it's sort of what one of the most powerful cinema experiences I've ever had. So, yeah, I think for all those reasons, it, it deserves to be up there. And it's my number one of the decade. So, um, yep, thank you, guys. Hi, uh, my selection is Coco. I thought the best movie of the decade should be represented by uh, something from Pixar because Pixar was one of the dominant forces in movie making for the decade. Uh, it also quite literally deals with life and death 
and humanizes rather than demonizes during the Trump and Fox News era. So uh, Coco is my selection. These are great choices, Amy. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, Adam Wingard's other film, uh, which starred uh, and Dan Stevens Dan and the Stevens. guests. Yeah, yeah. Honkazoid. Um, and your next is also a great, uh, a great, great film. And you know, Coco's one that doesn't really get brought up that much either. I, I like Coco a lot. I don't know if it's my favorite Pixar movie, but it actually is a great way. And I think Pixar does this all the time, like talking about big complex issues. And And I watched my kids celebrate Day of the Dead this year in school. And I thought it was such a beautiful thing. And I wish I had something like that when I was growing up. Now, I know you're not a big Steve McQueen fan. Uh, anybody here in the room a Steve McQueen fan? I, I really like Shame. Really? Yeah. Uh, Shame uh, is, uh, let me just look here, is number 44 on my hundred. Wow, all right. <laughs> um, no, I really like Shame. I, I, I really like Carrie Mulligan. I've liked her in most things I've seen her in, uh, all the way back to An Education, which is, uh, if that had been this decade, that would have been probably my top 10. I, right. I love An Education. Um, but yeah, Steve McQueen is is definitely, I, I think what you said about him, uh, Amy, in a previous episode is pretty right on, that when he comes to America to make movies about America, he sort of doesn't get the tone right. But Shame is different because it's about more of an internal um, you know, topography that he's trying to describe. And I think Shame is, uh, I don't know, I found it. I found it very affecting. It's a movie that I've only seen once, but I can still remember shots from it, sequences from it, like very clearly in my mind. So it definitely was doing something right to stick with me that long. Hey, everyone, this is Gil Ozeri. You may know me as the guy who eats food over a garbage can or my wife's cute little companion with the ass that won't quit. Or you may know me from Comedy Bang Bang. I play Dr. Sweet Chat and Ned Bellinella, the busiest man, or Irving Sardinus. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to say how much I'm going to miss Scott now that he's dead. What? What do you mean he's not dead? Well, whose funeral was that? What? Who the hell is Gary? Wow, okay, well, I guess I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy 15th anniversary. Wow, I always have the best time on CBB. It is so much fun to do, and Scott makes me feel warm and welcome and extra wet. So here's to another 15 years. Keep listening to Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. That's right, Ruba, they should go do it. Yes. They should, Ruba, right? Yes. Shouldn't they? No. What do you mean, no? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Bruba go do. Yes, Bruba go do. That's right, Bruba go do. Let's go back to some of our our friends here. We put the word out, and uh, we actually heard from some of our uh, fellow Earwolf hosts. And this is Lavar Burton talking about a film, maybe that you know, maybe I can convince you about, but maybe he can. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and my favorite movie of the decade has got to be Jordan Peele's Get Out. This is a movie I'd never seen before, and it brought um, all of the familiar about horror movies and all that I'd always wanted to see in a horror movie together in one hysterically funny film. Jordan Peele. Get out. Best movie of the decade. I love that because he leads with it being a comedy. And I think I think the comic moments are really, really strong in that movie. And, you know, it's so funny because there are those 
you know, those stones that like land in the lake and the ripples go out and, and get out. I feel like is a movie that gave us so many great people too. like, you know, we're like, Oh yeah, that person was in there. Oh, the people that we've like, we just start to accept now as major stars. Like you're like, Oh, you know, they all kind of not all, but there is a, it's a good, it's a good line from there. It's a really interesting thing. Like Jordan has done so much stuff, even in the short term to kind of create a name for himself that it feels like, Wow, his first film was just a couple of years ago. It's it's crazy. I mean, I will say using the voice of my childhood to convince me of something almost doesn't feel fair. <laughs> but, you know, if you do, like, have you seen Queen and Slim yet? No, I haven't seen it, but I've heard so many great things about it. Yeah, Kaluuya is so amazing in that. So if you're a get out person who's a Kaluuya head, mm-hmm. he's really great. I mean, like, he's great in Black Panther, too. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's go to uh, one of the office ladies, uh, Jenna Fisher. Hey, this is Jenna Fisher, and my favorite movie of the past decade is Bridesmaids. Short and sweet. I like it. <laughs> Quick. We told people to call in quickly. I mean, you know, and I... I don't even have to defend it. It's just Bridesmaids. You know, I have to say that... that um I feel like we gave that movie a little bit short shrift in that episode because we were talking about a lot of comedy. And that movie is just... A fantastic movie, and probably in the same way that we've been talking about what just is an automatic get on the list. That that movie feels to me like an automatic, like, it just goes on the AFI list. I mean, when I think about my top 20 movie-going moments of the decade, after I get through Breaking Dawn Part 2 and several other things, really high up on the list is... Seeing Bridesmaids at a press screening, and then the weekend it com- it came out, convincing two of my friends who had not been paying attention to ads to come see it with me at the Los Feliz 3, and realizing it was sold out, we had to go buy tickets to the next show, go get a drink, and we went and saw it in a crowded theater opening oh. weekend. That felt great. There is nothing more fun than seeing a, a great big comedy in a crowded theater. I, I remember seeing uh, MacGruber, Step Brothers, Girls Trip. Uh, and even honestly, Sex in the City in a crowded theater, like those are those experiences that I'm like, like the theater was like erupting around you the entire time. It was like you left with this like permagrin on your face. Uh, and it's such a, I love that feeling. I mean, I felt like that actually when I saw uh book smart and good boys in a South by this year, it was like, it was, those were electric screenings. So fun. And let's wrap up our Earwolf hosts with To the Stars of Voyage to the Stars. Felicia Day, what was one of the most memorable or best movies for you this last decade? Well, Janet Varney, thank you for asking. Pleasure. Um, I would love to say something Tony or something that had won a lot of accolades and a palm d'or uh-huh. or whatever like that. Is that how you say that? Yeah. Um, uh, my favorite movie was What We Do in the Shadows. It's a great movie. Because it made me laugh more than anything. Yeah. Uh, I feel like... I haven't laughed a lot in big movies lately, and mm-hmm. that one was a highlight. And um, yeah, and, and it in- introduced like Taika to the world, right? Taika, is that you said that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just got insecure because you look so Taika pretty. Taika Waititi. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. What about you? What was your favorite movie? Uh, well, when when uh, Paul asked me t- about this, my first thought was Jojo Rabbit, which I just absolutely adored. Hello? So there's a real Taika. Oh my Waititi god, we're having Taika- connection yes. here. But then I was like, oh, that's going to make it seem like I, I have no memory that stretches past 2019. I didn't. I had to Google. So I was I, like, what? Yeah. How many movies are in this? So decade? like, that's my like immediate knee jerk answer. But then when I really started to think about it and I went deep, I realized the movie I couldn't stop thinking about was called Under the Skin, 
It was a Jonathan Glazer movie. It what? is not something I would expect myself to name movie? on a thing like this. Was that like a zombie Scarlett movie? Scarlett Johansson is like an alien She's, inside. It is. I love that movie. I, 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 but I couldn't stop thinking about it. It's no. not like a joyful no, thing to not, watch. No, but it's, but it's, it's so strange. It stays with you. I agree. I, I commend So I say pick. watch that movie, but you have to be in the mood to just kind of be weirded out and, and be, be like, what's going on? We don't then, know. It's yeah, fine. exactly. And then be haunted by it forever. Okay. Thanks. You're 2010s. welcome. 2010s. And thanks, Felicia Day. Did they call them the 10s? Do we call them the 10s? I don't think so. Okay. I like that we're starting to get some sort of familiar themes here. You know, if you had asked me a month ago what's going to be the surprise hit of of Best of the Decade, I would have never guessed Under the Skin. I know. I think Ryan Johnson kind of just got in our, our ears and, and uh, maybe the general people's ears and, and just, uh, you know, cause it's a movie that I really love. And when he brought it back, it, it really just connected. It's like, Oh yeah, that was one of the most interesting films I've seen. He's all like knives under the skin. Oh yeah. 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 All right. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's see what you all are thinking. Hi, Unspooled. Um, my vote for one of the best films of 20, the uh, 2010s was 2016 Swiss army man. It was a unique film that just came out of nowhere and just, was really zany, but it also managed to have quite a lot of heart. So I think it is the film that has stuck with me the most over the past decade. So that has my vote. Thanks. Love the show. Bye. Hi guys. Uh, I I think I would put Pitch Perfect as one of the one of the best films of the decade. I think it's a really solid, almost kind of like a sports movie, um, but with such a wonderful, largely female cast, which was. I don't know, still kind of branded as something new and unexpected in comedy in 20, what was that, 12? Um, you know, launched a lot of great careers. Anna Kendrick, uh, for better or for worse, Rebel Wilson, uh, you know, but the, the chemistry is wonderful. The music is wonderful. Uh, lots of great comedy and just, I don't know, just a crowd, crowd pleaser. Hey guys, Tony in London. I would nominate Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy as my film of the decade. It's a 2011 film directed by Thomas Alfredson with Gary Oldman leading a Russian, uh, tracking down a Russian spy at the head of British intelligence at the height of the Cold War. It earned Gary Oldman a Oscar nomination, but he didn't win. And it was directed by Thomas Alfredson, who directed Let the Right One In as well. Um, and that would be my film of the decade. Love the show. Thank you. Hey, Paul and Amy. Just calling you with my favorite film of the decade, which for me is Arrival. Um, Arrival is a very personal choice for me in a lot of ways. Um, it's also very, uh, I think, I think a forward-thinking film. I think a film which challenges traditional uh, narrative structure just because of the way it comments on time and and the way that we communicate as a society trying to, you know, come to some sort of world peace or some sort of better uh, better world. And the fact that it came out, like, directly after the election of Donald Trump, I think that's um, just a fascinating uh, commentary there. But it became more important to me over the years because of the cancer part. Um, my mother uh, passed away uh, due to cancer in 2017, so a year after the film, and the arrival was one of the last films that we saw together. And obviously, the uh, daughter in the film um, passed away from cancer, and that being a big uh, part of that film, and saying like, "Oh, 
would you do things differently, um, you know, if you were given the chance? And Amy Adams' character is kind of given that chance and uh, uh, ultimately says no. And it's an interesting uh, uh, thing to think about. Um, but, but again, when I think about that movie, I think about mainly the execution and especially of that last, uh, those last few moments where the song comes in, those strings, and it's just uh, devastating and looking at, again, the way it plays with, with time in that sequence. So anyway, that's my favorite. Can't wait to hear yours. Um, thanks so much, guys. You know, Arrival is a movie we didn't really talk about that much, but that was a movie that definitely affected me as well. I remember just weeping in a theater alone in Chicago watching that movie. Uh, and I think being a parent, it just really brought a lot up for me. And uh, I don't know if I love that movie as a whole, but I think there's some really wonderful moments throughout it. And I, I think what he what he just brought up all rings true, but it's it doesn't... It doesn't fully feel like a, a, like a movie. I'm like, yes, yes, but it's it, it close. I mean, I know I said earlier that I'm allergic to Villeneuve. This is the one that I do really like, mm. actually. And I didn't love it the first time I saw it because I do have this thing where I get mad when I think that something is a dead kid movie. It's yeah. like, oh, not a dead kid movie. And it wasn't until I watched it the second time that I was able to put that aside and know what it really was. Yeah. And I loved it. And I, when that caller said post-Trump election, that was exactly what happened to me. Really? You know, I, the Trump election happened. I rewatched it, and suddenly it was the most beautiful film I'd ever seen. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think that, you know, with the way you watch these movies and the way that they hit you, it make a big difference of how they connect you. And, you know, we, you know, glided past Pitch Perfect, but Pitch Perfect, to me, I think, in, in many respects, is the bridesmaids for a younger generation. You know, that's a movie that spawned multiple, multiple sequels and is a movie that's so incredibly beloved and also not the biggest hit at the box office, but then grew and then became a bigger hit at the box office. Just a really kind of uh, a special film. And I think that all these movies, you know, they call out to you in a special way. They connect to you in a special way. They they serve an underserved community. And, you know, whether that is an acapella group or, you know, uh, just dealing with grief, it's, it's, it's really, uh, you can kind of, go in different directions. Well, I was happy to hear some love for Swiss Army Man. Oh, yeah. I think that movie's so fun and so beautiful. And it got kind of flattened for a second into the movie with the farting corpse. Yes, I know. As happens when you have a farting corpse in a movie. I mean, of course. When the movie opens with somebody riding a farting corpse like a speedboat. Yes, your movie yeah. does turn out to be the Fighting Corpse movie, but it is a, a, a shockingly beautiful movie. No, those guys are really special. The Daniels are great. I hired them to direct some episodes of NTSF uh, when we were doing it at Adult Swim, and they were just, they had an interesting take on everything that they did. I love working with them, and they just continue to be really interesting, fun directors to watch. And that, you know, talk about like a, a first movie coming out of the gate and saying, well, we're doing this. This is what we're doing. And by the way, they got somebody like Daniel Radcliffe on board for a movie that, like, that's a pretty bold, tr- I mean, like, for him to even do it. Like, that's, you know, to trust them to do that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, now I'm curious. Devin the Anglophile. Yes. 
What do you have to say about Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy? Oh, I really like Tinker Tailor. Um, I, I like uh, John Le Carre books just generally, and the actually f- following on from Star Wars, Alec Guinness plays George Smiley in the uh, TV adaptations that are very famous of these novels from the uh, from the late seventies, early eighties, and is he's fabulous in it. That's the role uh, Gary Oldman plays in this movie. Um, but yeah, the the cast is amazing. I mean, you've got Toby Jones, you've got Kathy Burke, you've got uh, Oldman, of course. Uh, yeah, it's just it's like pretty much everyone who is a top-tier British actor is in Tinker Tailor. Um, I'm aware that the pace is very glacial and it right. won't be for everybody. Um, it's very, very slow and very, very detailed, but um, especially as a fan of those books, it captures that feeling uh, that the books give you very, very well. So I'm a big fan of that movie. Yeah, I kind of fell asleep in that one. I'm not the <laughs> Anglophile you are. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's go to, uh, again, some group think. Um, they're going to introduce themselves, but there is one kind of clear winner on the best of the decade so far. Hey guys, it's Patton Oswalt calling in, giving you my answer for my favorite film of the decade. And I really wanted to go deep and esoteric and pick something like Tangerine or A Dark Song or The Florida Project or Phantom Thread, but God damn it, it's Mad Max Fury Road. That movie just blew me away. It really, really feels like the way forward uh, because there's no getting away from digital, no getting away from CGI anymore. Um, And that was the first film to me that showed you how to be real and human and ferocious with all of that technology. And to be able to put that uh, kind of deep character into pure motion and action. That movie, Mad Max Fury, Fury Road, I'm telling you, it's going to be borrowed from, argued about, referenced forever. The same way that Goodfellas was in the early 90s. Mad Max Fury Road. That's my choice. Thank you. Hi, it's Ike Barinholtz, and my favorite movie of the decade, Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, it's the only movie that I saw multiple times in the theater. Uh, it's scary, it's violent, it's grotesque, a perfect portrayal of life in modern-day America. And, uh, yeah, that's my pick. That's Ike's pick. I think my favorite movie of the decade was probably Mad Max Fury Road. It's the most epic, it's the most spectacular action film I can really recall seeing. Uh, in recent memory, and since the 2010s has really been dominated by sequels and reboots and remakes, I think Mad Max Fury Road is the apex of what can be done within that uh, confines of rebooting a familiar property, and everything about it, Tom Hardy's fantastic, Trace Theron's fantastic, and it's just my favorite movie. Hi, Paul and Amy. This is Seth Rogen calling. Um, I'm supposed to give you my favorite film of the last 10 years, and it is, for sure, Mad Max Fury Road. It has a wonderful and simple story. It, um, ah, there's a beeping noise. Ah, try to get away from it. It won't stop. Oh, it's stop. Okay. Um, it has a wonderful and simple story. It has a visceral experience. It has world building in it. It has, I mean, on a technical level, it's one of the most flawless films I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, all the performances are spectacular. 
I believe personally it draws heavily from the Buster Keaton film The General, which is one of my favorite movies of all time, at least as how uh, as far as the how the physical kind of trajectory of the movie goes. Um, and it has a guy riding a car made out of speakers uh, playing a uh, flamethrower guitar, um, which uh, should just lock it in for the win based on that alone. All right. Have a good one. Peace. All right. Well, that was a great uh, grouping of people. And I think they all kind of brought up the thing that I felt when I looked at that list. And when I was looking at the movie of the decade, there was one movie that really just hit every element of what we're talking about. It moves cinema forward. It pays homage to classic cinema. It it breaks trends. It, 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 it you know, all, all the things that you want. And I think we looked at and we talk about in these big blockbusters, you know, it's not as accessible as a Wizard of Oz or a Star Wars, but it also feels like something that is like in that world of like 2001 and, and Titanic, these very big things that uh, that I think everyone can get behind. And I, I appreciate I, that you've low key praised Titanic twice now. In this oh, episode. I'm Thank I'm you. I I am always going to get Titanic's <laughs> back because I do think that like it's a feat of filmmaking, and that's what we also are applauding too. It's like there are so many great films, but some things that are impossible make other things possible. So like without these movies that we have, we don't get. 10 years of the rest. I think Patton said that really well about, you know, the way Goodfellas became, you know, a guiding light for some people. I know not for you, but, uh, but, you know, and I think I love what Seth talked about as far as it paying homage to silent era. Like it's a, it, it would be really hard for me at this point to not have that in my top three, if I'm having a debate of the best of the decade. You know, what's so funny, too, is I think there's been a pattern in so many of our calls where people are like, I wish I was saying something highfalutin, but yeah, I did. Oh, maybe we don't. Maybe we can take away that guilt. Although I did think it was funny that of all the the highfalutin things that Patton name checked, he name checked something that I feel like nobody else I know has ever seen, which is called A Dark Song. And it's a movie about a girl who goes and does this ritual in an abandoned house in Wales to talk to her dead son. I thought I was like one of maybe a hundred people that knew that movie existed. So well done, Pat. Oh, no, he is. He is in it. He knows it. But, I, but I, you know, I think that this is the sense that we always feel like we have to give accolades to things that feel important. And, you know, I mean, that's why, I mean, and I brought it up partly, you know, as a joke in the beginning, talk about Fast Five or talk about, you know, uh, and again, I talk about MacGruber. I mean it earnestly. It's like These are fun movies. These movies that affect us and that are fun. It's like, that's what going to the movies is. Like, Star Wars is fun. Wizard wait, wait, of Oz wait, 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 is wait. fun. <laughs> <laughs> what? Now I thought you were trying to stealth snowball me into something. Oh, no. no that's fine. Okay. No, I've never so seen I was that. like nodding, nodding, and you're like, then Star Wars is fun. Now, wait, hold on. Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I think that, like, that, like, what we often, I think, equate as the best has to be serious. And we talked about that with Boogie Nights. Like, I do think that's a huge problem. Yeah. You know, it's like we can still have. We can, they don't have to have all the weight of the world on them. I mean, as a thought experiment, I'm imagining getting a new AFI list that says Mad Max Fury Road on it. And I'm imagining blinking and being like, whoa, they did it. And then settling into it and being like, okay. Yeah, you know, I, I am feel not like angry I'd go through that. a few waves of emotions, I'd, I, which is, I don't know, it's weird. It's like that first wave is almost my protectiveness of like, would they really let us do that? Could they, could they let it happen? Yeah. And then what if I, what if I said yes? 
Yes, they can. More more chances on this list. I think, you know, because obviously, like, I always think about we're showing it to the aliens. Like, let's show them as much diversity as we possibly can. I mean, we have no, we have nobody uh, suckling from teats on this list, I think, at, so far. And we oh, need we, more of that. Yeah, because they cut it out of Grapes of Wrath. Exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> all right. A lot of people called in with movies that we did touch on, but there's a couple of ones that we haven't. Hi, Amy and Paul. This is Will calling from Amherst, Massachusetts, and I'm here to, to talk about my favorite movie of the 2010s. It's really come down to two options, which may seem very different, but I believe upon further examination complement each other in profoundly unexpected ways. Trust me, I've done it. I've watched both of these back-to-back. My runner-up is Paul Schrader's First Reformed, a movie that haunted an existential part in me that I didn't know existed after watching it. Will God forgive us? Can God forgive us? Well, Paul and Amy, I decided to keep a journal, not in a word program or a digital file. Oh, I'm just kidding. But my favorite movie of the decade, it has to be the one I've watched 37 times, and that is Sharon, Shane Carruth's Upstream Teller. It first reformed as a meditation on the guidance of faith in the aftermath of trauma, then surely Upstream Teller studies the immediacy of the effects of trauma. Displayed in full by... Amy Simons' dare I say harrowing performance of a woman who has lost everything, both literally and figuratively, without memory of why. While Karis dazzles us with his Malikian camera work and Steve Reich-inspired score, and perhaps distracts us with writhing grubs and a knife-in-the-leg scene that would make Cronenberg wince, the core bloodstream color is a love story. I love this movie, and I can safely say that I notice something new each time I watch it. I also love Shane Carruth, while also I'm extraordinarily frustrated by him. The modern ocean, anyone? We're still waiting on it. All right, thanks, guys. Uh, for the 2010s movies, I while I really like stuff like The Witch and The Big Short, and I think they uh, belong on the list, one movie that I would love to not be forgotten is Catherine Bigelow's Detroit. I think it's an amazing film that... Uh, like really plays with the way stories are told, especially in the way that it shifts scope from very big to incredibly small, and the subject matter itself is so incredibly important. Uh, I think it's an amazing movie, and I'd love for that one to be uh, remembered, uh, and, and as it wasn't uh, seen quite as uh, widely as I would like for it to have been. Hi there. I will totally fall on the bandwagon and say Birdman is the most incredible film of the last decade. There is nothing that you could change to make it better. It's an incredibly um, well-cast crew and written beyond measure, and you get performances like I've never seen. So I definitely would fall on that bandwagon. The other one that I think does not get enough credit by any measure is Killing Them Softly. I feel like it just died in theaters, and nobody seemed to appreciate it, and yet... Again, for um, all the characters that you can get out of it, and the writing is spectacular. Um, it's a little slow, but I absolutely love it, and I think it is very much underappreciated. Love the show. Thanks, guys. You know, I don't want to be a Pollyanna here, Amy, but I, what I kind of love about all these calls is there is a movie for everyone out there. There is a favorite for everyone, and and there's something really cool about that as well. Like, I, I love when we can all agree on something as being great, but I also love just the personal you know, connection to these films. I, I uh, like, I look at a movie like Boondock Saints. Like, I know there's so many people who love that movie. Like, that's my movie. And, I, and uh, there's so many movies, you know, but out there. But I love when, like, there is one person who is stumping hard 
for uh, for a film that I haven't even heard talked about, like Killing Him Softly. I haven't heard anyone talk about number fifty nine on my hundred. Whoa, hey, all ah, right, there. You I go. love Killing Him Softly. Andrew Dominic is great. His uh, the movie he made right before that, yeah. the Assassination of Jesse James yes. by the coward Robert Ford. That is one of my favorite movies of the previous love, decade. Right. Wow, beautiful. And Killing Him Softly, she it, she was right. The caller was right that it just died a death. No one ever talked about it, but it had a lot of uh, there was a lot of satire going on there about the the collapse of the banks that you know didn't really get picked up on again until you got the big short and uh 21 oh, like homes uh, it's a great movie josh is it on your list it's no it's not i've never seen it <laughs> you've never but seen I, it <laughs> it's good well you're the only person who hasn't seen killing himself apparently uh, <laughs> <laughs> i have to say though you know really while we were hearing that really lovely that lovely celebration of Birdman, i was thinking to myself you know she's right we talked about that film here a little bit but we didn't even mention the amazing actors who were in that besides Michael Keaton. I mean, Andrea Riseborough is a fantastic actress. Naomi Watts is in there. Emma Stone. It actually is a great, great cast. And I can't believe it took that call. I appreciate that call for kicking me in remind and rem- yeah. making me remember that it's not just the Michael Keaton runs around and the camera doesn't break movie. Right, right. It's, again, the flattening. The flattening. Well, that's it. We talk about it so much and then we just get tired of it. Wait, Amy, how do you feel about Birdman as a critic? Because it's not kind to critics. Oh, yes. Oh, well, yes. Yes. I'm sort of used to that at this point. Being a critic is like being a female journalist. Every movie thinks you're the worst. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I'll just say at least make the critics smart. As long as we're smart. Well, that's fine. Well, uh, you know, uh, based on your pick of Anomalisa, I believe Charlie Kaufman's now making his next movie about a critic who watches a three year long movie. That was probably the next story of my life. If there's like if we just. Have been her too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's uh, go back to some of our friends uh, and let's hear from uh, Sarah Silverman. Hi, Paul and Amy. It's me, Sarah Silverman. This is impossible. Um, if I keep thinking, I'll come up with different ones. So, best favorite movie of the decade. Let's talk through this. I'm not usually into um, comedies. But a real strong one, Bridesmaids. Fucking Bridesmaids. It's a perfect movie. It's tears funny. It uh, can make you kind of cry, I gotta say. And um, it's got romance, all that shit. Then I go to like a movie that if it's ever on TV, I'm watching it. And uh, Bridesmaids is one of those, but so is Wolf of Wall Street. So do I go with Wolf of Wall Street? Well, then I saw two movies recently, and, you know, they're just stuck in my head. Maybe it's because they're recent. One is Britney Runs a Marathon. Just a great movie. Fucking perfect movie. Funny makes you, and I have sobbed. But if I've got to pick one, this is crazy. I'm going to pick the last movie I saw, and that was Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Now, you probably think, Sarah, you love Mr. Rogers. You love Mr. Rogers. So, of course, it's going to be your favorite movie. Yeah, good point. But um, it's actually unbelievable. I think, objectively, it is fucking brilliantly directed. Incredible restraint. Incredible choices. Uh, the... If you haven't seen it, you're going to think this sounds weird. The puppetry of the exterior shots, genius. And um, the acting, the story, 
left me in a goddamn puddle of tears. It was a perfect movie, and I'm going with um, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. A lot of B movies, I mean, just starting movies that start with B, right? Brittany runs a marathon, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, with a little Wolf of Wall Street in there for some um, some W love. Oh, my God, am I still recording? Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, final answer. I love that call. I want to unpack all of it. Um, some love for Bridesmaids. We talked about that a little bit. And I just recently saw Britney Runs a Marathon. And I also really enjoyed it. I thought it was such a good, solid film. Um, you know, it was part of, I think, one of those big Sundance buys. Um, but uh, Jillian Bell, I think, is just the best. And she's so good in that movie. I really, really love it. I'm so grateful to 22 Jump Street for making me know who she is. Oh yeah, and she's and she's so different in this movie, and she's she's a very versatile actress, and I think it would have been very easy for her to get stuck in a mold, and she consistently breaks it. Um, I will say, I cried honestly at a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Have you seen it? I can't wait. It's on the top of my list. There is a scene, and almost everybody I know, you get to that scene, and that is it, and you are done, and you are crying, and I was crying into my Alamo Draft House whiskey uh i will you know i wanted to give some love to the director because she said it's so beautifully directed and that is by um mariel heller who i believe called here last year for our academy awards episode she directed a movie that i love that came out in 2015 called diary of a teenage girl yes. it's a fantastic movie. so Such, good she's uh, wrote and directed that movie she and she also we talked about her uh i think again because she uh directed uh can you ever forgive me yes great melissa mccarthy performance Oh, so good. She's a great director. She's another one, you know, who I think you look at those three films, like she's killing it. Like, yeah, yeah all, all those movies. It's the kind of person who, you know, when uh, people make the counter argument on Twitter, like, oh, you, you want it to just be a woman in the running for Golden Globe best director yeah. just for just to just to have it there. It's like, yeah. no, people are cranking out solid movies all the time. Yeah. Like Jennifer Kent, you know, uh, uh, Andrea Arnold. Yeah, and definitely Mariel Heller. I mean, these are great movies, one I after another. Totally, totally agree. And you know what? I have to say, I feel the same way about Wolf of Wall Street. It's a super fun movie. I don't know why. Like, I mean, I feel like it's probably not like in that upper tier of Scorsese, but it should be. It's great. It's. I think DiCaprio is fantastic in it. Margot Robbie's so good in it. It's such a funny interesting movie that again talks about the society where you know it's like movies of how we got to where we are and that's a great movie about wealth and how we uh and how we treat it and yeah it's in the the fact that that guy is still out there giving like corporate seminars for real is amazing to me um let's listen to uh a voice that you might recognize take a listen hey this is justin roiland and my favorite movie of the decade i think uh it was her by Spike Jones, Spike Jones movie. Um, I really like that movie a lot because it's one of the rare futuristic, um, you know, kind of sci-fi movies that, that paints a more positive, somewhat hopeful look instead of the dystopian nightmare that we're probably actually headed for. Um, I love the technology. I loved how how real the world felt, um, you know, the love story, everything. It was, it was fantastic. So yeah, that's my favorite movie of the decade. I think uh, I'm probably wrong. There's probably something else better, but anyway. All right. 
That's mine. See ya. Of course, that's Justin Rowland, the uh, co-creator of Rick and Morty. I love that, you know, everyone's a little bit nervous about putting forward what they think is the best, which is going to, which I don't think that Josh or Devon is going to have a problem with, but, <laughs> uh, but he's not alone. He's not alone in his her love. Take a listen. Hey, Paul and Amy. Um, this is Nick. Um, my pick for the best movie of the decade is Spike Jones's Her. Uh, it's just a beautiful humanist film with a wonderful performance from Joaquin Phoenix and maybe an even better one from Scarlett Johansson. Um, I think her is the best film of the decade because it understands the dehumanizing relationship that humans have with uh, technology, but it demonstrates it in a way that feels empathetic and not like I'm kind of being lectured. Um, and it's also just timeless in like how it explores the nature of love, how we choose to be loved, how we want to be loved. And kind of like how both characters experience how we need to grow to learn how to love. Um, it's not really a film that I've seen anything like really in previous decades, and I don't think could have been made then. Um, the cinematography and use of color is just rich and gorgeous. And it's, it's funny, it's touching, it's original, and I'm just blown away by it every time I watch it. And that's why it's my favorite movie of the decade. Hey guys, my absolutely favorite film of the entire decade is Spike Jones's Her. Uh, I love everything about this movie. I think, uh, Spike Jones took what is a very silly premise on paper, uh, which is a guy falls in love with his phone's operating system and turns it into, uh, something that is very sweet and well done and nuanced. And, uh, Joaquin Phoenix is great. Scarlett Johansson is incredible. Uh, it's probably the best voice performance I've ever heard. It's, uh, there's nothing that I don't like about this movie. Thanks. I like how that cut off right when the cops were coming after yeah. But no, I, you know, speaking of getting our courage, now I feel more, more courage in saying that I do think her belongs on the list. That was one of my picks. And yeah. I like feeling that I'm not alone and that uh, and that other people also feel emotionally connected to that film like I do. I love it. All right, let's keep uh, this train going and listen to uh, the co-writer of one of the films that we talked about uh, last week, which is Emily Gordon, the co-writer of Big Sick. Hi, uh, this is Emily V. Gordon, and <laughs> my favorite movie of the decade. Well, you're going to get several answers uh, because I don't know how to do this properly and just pick one. I tried to think of what did I see in the theater the most times, which would be, I think, a time between Won't You Be My Neighbor and Get Out. Those movies are amazing, but I don't even know if that's the right answer. So I think when I think about absolutely, hands down, whole decade, what has stuck with me the most, what have I loved the most? It's a tie. (laughs) So sorry. So I'm naming four movies. It's a tie between Phantom Thread and the Babadook. And Phantom Thread, I just, it kind of blew me away with how, like, sexy and, like, dementedly romantic and layered and well done it was. Uh, it had such amazing performances. And the Babadook, uh, because I love horror movies. Uh, it's such an amazingly scary movie. It's about grief. It's about loss. It's about real stuff. And so much, I feel like the horror campus could have divided into great visuals, no real story, obviously there are exceptions, or really, really great story, but there's no visuals that are going to, like, like make me a little scared to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. But the Duke had both. 
um, as well as creating a queer icon for everyone, which is also lovely. So I think I'm going to go Phantom Thread, Baba Duke, Ty. Can't, can't pick one over the other. But thanks for really making me agonize over this question because it's hard. It's a tough question. Um, okay. Thanks, guys. Bye. I love that you brought up the Babadook. It's a movie that it really stuck out to me too. It's it's a, I think it's a special type of horror film. We talked about horror not being represented, and that's a movie that I really really like, and I think about a lot, a lot, a lot. And I will say, seeing the Babadook show up on Pride floats has been one of the most wonderful surprises of cinema. Oh my gosh! I actually <laughs> bought a Babadook recreation book that was like specially ordered. It's beautiful. I love it so so much. Um, all right, so we get down to our final calls. I have a call from uh, my good friend, uh, the godfather of one of my children, uh, Rob Hubel. Hi, uh, my name is Rob Hubel, Paul. Um, uh, I think you know me from, uh, well, I guess we've been friends for about 20 years, so we know each other pretty well. Um, <laughs> I'm calling to tell you my favorite movie of the past decade, which is really hard to pick one. And I want to say fuck you for this assignment. Uh, I'm also on vacation in Hawaii. Uh, but let me go ahead and get to the point. Um, but I am on vacation in Hawaii. No big deal. I can afford it. Um, I think my favorite movie of the last 10 years might be The Lobster. Um, I really love a movie like that that creates a completely different world with a completely um, absurd set of rules that you have to abide by. And it's all played very straight and taken very seriously. So I think that makes it even more funny. And um, yeah, I just think there's something really funny about watching people play something that is so ridiculous but play it so straight. You know, they have like 45 days to fall in love or they're going to be turned into an animal. What a silly premise, but played straight. I just think it's really funny. Um, so I think that's one of my favorites. And uh, I was also going to say La La Land. I know that people uh, that listen to this podcast might get really mad at me and try to uh, vandalize my house or something because of that. But I really like La La Land, you guys. I was on board for that. Uh, I think a really well done musical is fun to to be a part of and enjoy and, and just let it wash over you. So I love La La Land also. All right, Paul, I love you. Um, I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. Paul, I have a question. Yeah. Where's Rob live? Uh, he lives in Los Angeles. <laughs> La La Land. If he's out of town right now, I could go pay his house a visit. You could, but you know what? <laughs> you listen to his joy. There's a movie for everyone, Amy, a movie for everyone. I'm glad that he stuck up for La La Land. And uh, and I love that he you know gave uh, some love to the lobster, which we continue to talk about. And I think what you know Rob talked about, which is an interesting idea, which is we live in this world where I think sometimes you can tackle really uh, complicated uh, premise through comedy. And if you play it the right way, it can really, really work. We talked about that with Sausage Party a few times. And and he's right. Like creating the rules of the world and playing within those rules and, and world building, it's it's it uh, it's something that we strive for. And we always talk about world building, world building. But it's it's so simply done sometimes. It seems like people work so hard to create worlds, but it's like, oh no, just do it like that. They, it seems pretty easy, but maybe it's harder than it looks. I think it takes just trusting your audience will catch up. Yeah. They don't need to be like, Back in the day, this right. thing happened, and you don't this have to thing explain. happened, and these factions started, and therefore, one child will save them all. It's the, uh, it's the problem with every How Did This Get Made movie, like this like this fucking 
precursor before you actually get into the movie. It's like, no, just let me enjoy the movie. Uh, and finally, um, a director that I recently worked with who actually was just uh, tasked with revamping Are You Afraid of the Dark? And I think he did a fucking bang up job of it. He made a scary show for kids that was on Nick that I think scared the shit out of kids in a great way, the way that you're supposed to. Uh, ben David Grabinski. Hi, I'm Ben David Grabinski. And my favorite movie of the decade is. I'm going to pause for a moment because I'd like to clarify. I have a hard situation because my top three is MacGruber, Mandy, and Fury Road. And I've been struggling for weeks about deciding which one is my favorite because I love them all equally. But I'm going to say Mandy is my favorite movie of the decade because it combines everything I love about movies into a very specific, extremely original, and just cinematic masterpiece. So I love it. That's all I got to say. Mandy's great. I love that top three. <laughs> I mean, it's a fun one. And Mandy is a, definitely an odd choice, but I think, you know, maybe the best film of the decade is the film that spoke to you the most. It doesn't have to be the best film for everybody. It's just the film that you love. No, we need a list, man. No, we got we- rules here. <laughs> this is our world building. Well, let's get to our, our the most important people who matter. The top, the top five of Devin and Josh. Let's hear it. We've been waiting all episode to see where you guys fall on this list. Uh, who went first last time? I went first last you, time, right. so Josh, you should go first you this go. time. All right, let's do it. Mm-hmm. All right. Number five is from a uh, director who I guess is my director of the decade because he's the only director who shows up twice in my top five, who is Darren Aronofsky. Wow, interesting. And my number five pick is Black Swan. Um, I love I get, it. When I mentioned before that like The Master is a movie that like I can't connect with on a visceral level, I always connect with Aronofsky on a visceral level. I don't know what it is. He like hijacks my brainstem. Black Swan is just, like, it's a movie that takes the paradoxes of, like, female identity and, like, what it means to be an artist and all these things and, like, fuses that to this elemental horror story and has this incredible climax. The music is so good. It's just, it's, yeah, I, 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 I loved this movie when it was out in 2010. It hasn't faded much for me. Oh, my gosh. I love that. That's a movie we didn't really talk about um, that much at all. I, li- I like that, that you brought that one up. All right, what's the next one? I realized also putting this together that three of my top five films are about uh, the personal sacrifices necessary to be a creative type. I don't know what that says about me. I think you need a vacation. It it might. I know exactly what it says about you. (laughs) It probably does. Uh. Um, Amy, I was really happy you very briefly mentioned this before, but uh, Patterson was my number four. Oh, really? Yeah. Aw. Please give the ode to Patterson that that I did not fully give it. Here we go. Uh, and I'm not also not even usually a Jim Jarmusch person. Uh, I really love this movie, though. It's 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 like it's it's like a Zen koan. It's like a movie where, like, you keep revisiting, like, certain certain settings or certain scenes or certain, like, modes of, like, being with a certain character. And you dig a little bit deeper every time. You learn a little bit more every time. And it's it's very much a movie about, like, just learning to to be an artist while also just existing in the world and realizing that being an artist is not about the art. It's about like the process and about the living of that life and what you do. Uh, I found it just like very, very beautiful. This mm-hmm. is great. I love this. Yeah. All right. Number three, I'm not going to spend that much time on it, is Moonlight. Uh, I loved, yeah. loved, loved, loved Moonlight. Uh, but uh, I felt like the things that were happening to Chiron in that movie were like happening to me. It's such a, it's a movie that has such empathy 
I, I, I was really spellbound by that film. I mean, so. not that life is a competition, but who's your favorite actor in Moonlight? I mean, even like the first in the in the first section, like that child actor is he's so good too. I I don't know if he is my favorite. I, I think Travante Rose might be my favorite. But Travante is so good. He's so good. In that, I love yeah. that idea that what you're saying. Like, I think that the movie does pull you in in a way where it really, and that's what I think. Maybe I unfairly wanted from if Beale Street could talk. Like I didn't feel that same emotional connection. I thought I was enjoying watching it, but I wanted that same kind of feeling, which is an unfair thing to put on a director. But I think. His female characters are just a little too flat, and he centered that one around the female character. Yeah. Mm. I hate to say it, but I do think that's a little true. I, I love his films otherwise. They're, I mean, they're gorgeous to look yeah. at. Absolutely beautiful. Also, both of those great scores. Oh, yeah. Nicholas, Nicholas Bertel, one of the great yeah. co- composer finds of the decade. Completely For agree. sure. Number two, Amy, this is a film we saw together. Uh, Mother ended up being my number two movie <laughs> wow. of the decade. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Josh. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's... Uh, it's definitely the most thematically ambitious film of the decade. We've it not is. talked about this. We have not talked about this movie all. at all. Nope. It's it's a relationship drama. It's a comedy of manners. It's an environmental parable, and it's also a loose retelling of the Bible. Sometimes about all at the same time, and it's that's such an insane concept for a movie. And I love when movies shoot that big and fail, but I think this movie shoots that big and succeeds against all odds. It's like. It's so mental. It's so fucking funny. I mean, Aronofsky, like, like he knows he's being funny in this movie. He knows hey, he knows how he's toying with an audience. Yeah, and it just like I've I've seen it like five times now, and it holds up. I thought that movie well. was unfairly <laughs> maligned. Like, I really think that it was yeah. like it was a it was trounced on in a way that just felt like this doesn't deserve to be this shit on. Yeah, like, yeah. I, it is a movie. I will say I have also seen five times. Whoa. Whoa. It's not it's not in my top ten. It's actually on my list number one hundred. Oh, okay. but, but good, good place. I absolutely love it. I think it does succeed, but I think it succeeds because it fails. There's something about that movie that it is trash. It is trash because it thinks it's so much smarter than it actually is. But it's excellent. I, right. I, I don't know how to describe it. No, I, I hear what you're saying. And I, I keep going back to it, and I'm like, I'm just going to watch Mother again. And I'm sitting there going like, why is this working? You you, you son of a bitch, Look, Darren Aronofsky, uh, you I, got me again. I, I love I love big swings. Yeah, he I just, agree. He just always takes yeah. big swings. I, I love agree. big swings, too. I remember walking out of the theater with you and, and, um, and Sam, and we were all sort of like, what just yeah. happened? <laughs> I think I would feel more rooted in being able to love that movie even more if we hadn't stayed for the post-credits thing. Do you oh, remember yeah. how the Arclight did like a post-credit, oh, let's talk to Aronofsky thing? Yeah. And Aronofsky was just wearing a bunch of scarves and he was like, <laughs> oh, this movie was so great working on it. Oh, Javier Bardem is such an artist. Oh my gosh, he, he brought so much to the table and Jennifer get, takes good direction. And I was like, what? Uh, and I got so mad at him just for only chalking up Jennifer Lawrence to taking good direction that it made me mad. Well, when you layer that that was his ex-girlfriend too and that's yeah, right. extra context I'm not necessarily defending him as a human being no just no no right. I just wish I would have <laughs> left the theater before that because then I left mad at him and I was on a high from that movie I love that you brought up something in the last minutes of the podcast <laughs> to kind of uh, open it up alright and what's your number one pick again my number one pick is also a movie you very briefly mentioned You, we have not we've almost not talked about it at all so I'm, gl- I'm glad all I right. get to have a little chance to talk about it uh, my number one movie of the decade is Inside Lewin Davis oh. Oh. very 
very good cat in that movie. It's yeah, a, a great cat. F- first of all, an excellent cat. Uh, <laughs> very good cat. And I do love cats. Yes. Um, although I didn't, wasn't even a cat owner at the time this movie came out. Uh, now the Coen it has bro- so much more depth to you since you have a cat? Yeah, it, it has, of course. Um, the Coen brothers are my favorite directors, but yeah. that's, not the, that's not the number one. It's, this is a movie that means a lot to me. Um, the year this came out was a tough year in my life. It was like I was like considering reconsidering a lot of career choices and personal mm-hmm. choices. And so seeing this movie about a character who was similarly adrift, I think I really related deeply. I I still think he's a really misunderstood character. A lot of the reviews, even like the admiring reviews that came out of this movie at the time were like, oh, I love this movie, even though it's centered around such an asshole, like such uh, a great character. And I like, I took that sort of personally. <laughs> um, I think of, I think Lewin Davis is a character that has like a real moral compass and is constantly trying to do the right thing. Even if he sometimes falls prey to his own impulses, doesn't always succeed. He is just like an, an artist who has been ground down by the struggles and like a capitalist world that doesn't really have a place for him. He thinks about giving up, but he doesn't. And he just keeps going. And at the end of the movie, he's been beaten up and he's laying in an alley, but he, but he smiles anyway. And it's just, it's a movie about like kind of continuing on, even when that. you keep fucking up and fucking up. Uh, and it's also... A f- such a funny movie. Uh, it's got an amazing soundtrack that they played over and amazing over and over soundtrack. again. Yeah. Uh, that whole John Goodman interlude in the middle is so weird and strange. It's 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 in my top three Coens for sure. Oh, it is wow. absolutely one of the best. Great films. top three, really. Yeah. Wow. That, Browsing defense. Yeah, it was. I really really enjoy it. You 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 sold me on a couple things here. All right, uh, Devin. Uh, you know, as you go through, let's see yep. where those films are. Did uh, Lewin Davis end up on your list? Did Downton Abbey? Oh, that's a good list? question. Lewin Davis must, it, I'm sure, yeah, number 32. So okay, got it. That's very high for me because that's coming right under eighth grade, yeah. which I adore. Ooh, eighth grade is so great. Which like, is in the same neighborhood on my list as like Nightcrawler and see, Death of Stalin, all movies I love. I would take eighth grade, I think, over Lady Bird, maybe. I, I understand. I, I felt you thinking that earlier yeah. when it came up that because yeah. it, it's in the, it, that and Boyhood and Lady Bird are all yeah yeah, but I, they're they're all top notch. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, they're all, all pretty those. solid. Um, yeah, Mother was at the bottom. Uh, I think those are the only two from uh, Josh's top. I, Black Swan didn't make mine because, like I say, I was trying to keep it to one director, yeah, sure. one per director. Um, but all right, so my top five, number five, The Raid. Two. Ooh. The Raid 2. two. Oh, yes. Okay. Now, Amy briefly did mention uh, The Raid, yeah. which in the U.S. was called The Raid Redemption. Uh, the Raid is, a, the first one is a fantastic action movie. I mean, it's just so simple. The plot is go fight upwards. Yeah. You, you cannot go out. You must fight up. That's it. And so, so much like a video game, but done in such a kinetic way. I mean, it's just thrilling to watch that movie. The The practicality of yeah. the way that the fights are staged is incredible. I mean, do you miss the fact that we could have had that in uh, Force Awakens of Harrison Ford didn't break his leg. That was oh. all. That was all the guys. It was supposed to be a fucking yeah. full-on raid fight. No kidding. In the in the Millennium Falcon. Like but, a, I, I don't know quite how to say, it, but Panchek Salat, that fighting style. Yeah, was yeah, yeah. To, oh, oh wow. so was, but he broke his foot, so they could never shoot it. Is that what happened wow. at the end of John Wick Three too? Yes. They also show up, and I'm like, oh, we're gonna get one of them. Oh, oh okay. Now, now, so that's uh, one of the stars of Raid and Raid Two. Uh, the guy who plays Mad Dog in the yeah. in the second one, and then also the uh, fight coordinator are the two dudes in John Wick Three. And I have read. I don't know if it's true, but I choose to believe it. Yeah. that Keanu Reeves would not let John Wick's character kill them because he felt like it was disrespectful to two giants of martial arts cinema wow. because he likes the raid so much. I love that. Internet's boyfriend strikes again. Exactly. Yes. Um, but I have the raid two on my list because I think the raid two doubles down on the, what the first movie does and adds this 
just, I mean, a Godfather-esque epic crime story to and a scope yeah. to, to the same kind of action stuff. So you do get spectacular action sequences, like the fight in the prison yard. I will remember for the rest of my life. It's so it's. Staged. I have to watch it. I did not see it. You okay. haven't seen Ray no, Two? No, no. Oh, uh, the, there's a car chase in the middle of it that is about 15, 20 minutes long, where uh, things can only be shot with like a, a motorcycle riding up to the car, taking the camera out of one fight and driving it up to another car and back Whoa. in where it's just done so smoothly and effortlessly. At the, the first time I watched that movie was at home. At the end of that car chase, I stood up in my own living room and applauded. Wow. All right. Wow. Okay. Legitimately. But it also has, like like I say, there's heart, there's character, yeah. there's plot, there's scope, there's uh, an epicness to it. That I love it. Okay. You wouldn't expect from an action movie. I think it's truly yeah. the best action movie of the decade. I, I love it. I love Two this. Pieces. Okay, great. Um, okay. Number four, Raw. Got mentioned earlier. Thank you. Uh, Julie de Cornell's oh, movie. Okay. Uh, French film about a young girl who's going to, who's dealing with her first week at veterinary school. Uh, she is vegetarian, but there's some, oh, she's vegan even, but there's, uh, there's some hazing rituals at the school that involve her getting her first taste of blood and or meat. And some things that are lurking within her and possibly her family begin to surface in ways that she Ooh, is man, incapable of controlling. And okay. it's such a beautiful uh, metaphor for sexual awakening and 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 the, just that moment when you're not a child anymore, but you're not yet an adult, uh, done in a way that is very horror-oriented, okay. sort of, and thrillery. Uh, the music is spectacular. It looks great. The central performance is incredible. I, I love Raw. I think that's a perfect movie. And I will All say, right. this veterinary school makes Porky's look like a kindergarten. <laughs> uh, <laughs> true. Oh, that's a fantastic movie. So, yeah, highly recommend it. Uh, right. Number three, I won't spend much time on Moonlight. I think great. that's... In, yeah. in, in, it would be in most of our yeah. top tens of this decade because it's just so well made. Totally agree. Uh, on every level. Um, number two, Lady Bird. Oh, there it is. I love Lady Bird. I remember, I remember exactly what I said as soon as I left it. I tweeted, uh, or Facebook, I can't remember what, but I said... I loved Lady Bird with uh, an intensity bordering on mania, and that is true. I I was in tears for the back 45 minutes of that movie, um, and I should say, I think that this is the power of this film. Right. I didn't grow up where Greta Gerwig grew up. Uh, I was never a teenage girl, but... I felt that movie so deeply because that relationship between the mother and the daughter was exactly my relationship with my mom or aspects of yeah, it. Yeah. You know, there was so, it wasn't exactly the same, but there was so much truth in it that I, it just brought me back to being 17 and those kinds of fights you'd have for no reason with someone you absolutely love. And the whole movie is about that. And I just... The, it's funny those ugh. movies that like that really hit your childhood. Like there's one yes. movie in particular I can think of from my childhood. And I'm like, mm. oh yeah, that one. I'm, it just like it kind of goes right in there. It's a toy with uh, Jackie Gleason, oh. Richard Pryor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, but no, but I, but I, but it's funny. It's like when you find those movies that yeah. really like it's that that that's something special. So it's like I can completely understand Paul what you saying. Like uh, you're you're gonna wait for another credit. Yeah, yeah. You want to see her do a couple yeah, yeah. movies. And same as you said about Jordan Peele. That's totally valid. I mean, someone on their first outing, it makes something that connects with you yeah. that's awesome um, if it doesn't quite but you still recognize that it's good it's like you still have them in your mind it's like this is a person to check out yeah and I really love Lady Bird I mean I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm just being critical on it for no, no, no reason no, no I get you and I appreciate that you did not grow up at like a girls Catholic school as right. a teenage girl and that makes me feel more solidified and feeling like I'm not just loving it because it's my life story gotcha <laughs> yes, I mean exactly. I do think as you were talking I got that image in my head of Laurie Metcalf alone mm. in her sewing room <sighs> mending the dress that her mm. daughter will never really appreciate uh, that yes. she did and I was like oh uh. 
Okay. And I think Too about the, uh, that last airport scene all the time. Oh, yeah. God. Such a good scene. Uh, Seriously. The, the, to have Beanie Feldstein on this planet has been a goddamn gift. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And, uh, oh, and Chalamet's in that one, too, right? Isn't he the, yeah. he is. the he gothy, is. The gothy boy? They're all in there. Um, I, I love Lady Bird so much. It's, it's it, yeah, I, I, there's no words to describe. But um, my number one of the decade, Phantom Thread. Oh, there it is. I love it. I think that's the best movie I saw this whole decade. Um, Lady Bird was probably my most intense, like, theater-going experience. Yeah. Um, and there's been a couple recent movies this year. Like, Parasite is definitely one of, the, like, one of the few movies I left thinking that was flawless. I can't think of a single thing I didn't like about that from start to finish. But it's so new. I feel kind of weird sticking it yeah, in the top kind of ten. Like, but now, where does that rake on your Paul Thomas Anderson films? Okay, so... I'm glad you asked that. I was about to. No, I think it's an important question. I, I think Phantom Thread... I remember thinking at the time, it's the closest spiritually to Punch Drunk Love for right. me because it's that same kind of cracked love story. Well, it really is a love story, but you get the impression that that's as straight as he can write one. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yes. That's as down the line as he knows how to play a proper love story. And I, and I like that about him. I like that tone. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and yet it also has a little bit of the, maybe because of Johnny Greenwood's score, it has a little bit of the stateliness of the master kind of layered on top 100%. of that. So uh, Phantom Thread is high for me. Um, I think in terms of his... In terms of his films, I mean, you're hard pressed not to put Boogie Nights as your favorite. I kind of feel like that. Yeah, that's so true. much energy. It's just it's like an electric movie. I mean, every everything's firing on all cylinders from start to finish. Of kind the of film. the best of everything that he does. Yes. You know, like that idea. Yeah, we talked about that with yeah. uh, Wes Anderson. Although maybe with that Anderson. is the antidote to everything we're saying about like we fall in love with somebody's early film and then we're like maybe they'll do better. Yeah. We keep coming back to Boogie Nights. He keeps making great films, but yeah, maybe falling yeah. in love with an early film doesn't mean we can't love the later ones. I love right. that too. She said excitedly flinging a marker. She, <laughs> uh, she just solved all of our problems. So I, I would say for me, my favorite personally is Punch Drunk Love. It means the most to me. I think yeah, Boogie Nights Punch is probably his. Too. Yeah, I mean, Punch Drunk Love is incredible. Yeah. I think Boogie Nights is probably his best made, but Phantom Thread is one that I just think is... Who else? Who else would have made that movie? No one. And that's what I love about everything in my top ten. Really, truly, yeah. That's what got it into my top ten. Nobody else would ever have even wanted or thought of making this, and that means a lot to me um, in terms I, of art that I'm a fan of. I like it. What a great best of the decade wrap up. Um, I will just quickly go around and ask this question though, because I feel like there's one cohesive theme that I keep on coming back to. Maybe I'm wrong. But if you had to pick right now and say Moonlight or Mad Max on this list, oh. what would you put? And that, like, I, I know we've talked about other ones, but mm -hmm. I feel like that's the one that these are the two that I feel like have definitely. Those are both legitimate contenders for yeah. the AFI of the future. Not that they have to fight each other out. They don't need to fight each other out. But I think. Well, or if maybe, they fought each other out, I don't think Mad Max. I mean, Mad Max would kill it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, or maybe. You could put Little Soft Moonlight against that. But maybe, maybe that's. Maybe instead of even fighting it out, let's we'll say maybe those are the two clear favorites. Maybe yeah. like, maybe cause it's like, I don't know. I don't want to like, I don't even want to get in that discussion. Cause it's sort of like, they're so v v grossly different. It makes sense. Although maybe this is where I finally admit I didn't love Mad Max as much as everybody else did. Wow. I don't know why. All right, great. And it's with that, Josh dives under the table. <laughs> <laughs> but that's great. All right. Well, there we go. I mean. I would put Moonlight in a heartbeat. I think I would too. I would put Moonlight in a heartbeat. Yeah, I feel like if at the end of the day, based on the representation on the list, yeah. based on the uh, uh, on the stories, I would put that on, uh, that, that edges out Mad Max. Now, Mad Max is a very close second because I also think Ed, Mad Max push forward cinema in a way that was more innocuous than bigger things like Titanic mm -hmm. or 2001, but is such a strong 
It's such a it, like you don't even realize what it did, but it did so much. Yes. Next week, Unspooled is back on schedule, and we are doing a film I think a lot of you have been waiting for: Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strange Love. So, in honor of Doctor Strange Love, we thought we should open next week with your elevator pitch for your own satire, with a title that starts with Doctor Strange Blank. I'll let you fill in the blank and give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. And join us next week for Dr. Strangelove.